Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Ontario announced funds to hire more than 4,000 long-term care workers by the end of the fiscal year. Rod Phillips, the Minister of Long-Term Care, joins us to talk about that. The economic impacts of the pandemic are squeezing businesses, trying to find workers. There's an ongoing labor shortage that's going on. What industries are struggling the most? Well, we'll expose that for you. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has received heavy criticism over his family vacation on the first ever Truth and Reconciliation Day. Not the first time he's been criticized for some bad decisions. Dr. Charles Pascal wrote an open letter to the Prime Minister, and he joins us to talk about it. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Ontario is now making COVID-19 vaccines mandatory for all staff at long-term care homes. Uh, Global Sandy Salerno has details. Unless they have a medical exemption, all long-term care staff, including support workers, students, and volunteers, will have until November the 15th to prove they've been fully vaccinated. Staff who don't show this will not be allowed to work inside a long-term care home. Long-term care minister Rod Phillips says the policy change was made because vaccination rates at some homes weren't high enough. Currently, 367 of the 626 homes have staff immunization levels below 90%. And more concerningly, 99 homes have a rate below 80%. Phillips says he understands there is a risk of some homes losing some staff over the change, but says they're putting measures in place to support those who may need some help. Sandy Salerno, Global News. Well, let's uh, get the details on that and uh, another update, of course, about uh, funding for long-term care facilities. And to that end, we are are pleased to welcome back to the program uh, the Minister of Long-Term Care for the province of Ontario, uh, Rod Phillips. Uh, Minister, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me back. I, one of the questions that I, uh, as soon as I saw the announcement, uh, Minister, of course, about the, the mandatory vaccinations is what took you so long? I, I, I know it's a problem you've been tracking for the last little while. And you must, I know you're also aware that uh, the Grace Villa here in Hamilton, which is a problem, uh, has been a problem through the, this whole pandemic because of, of the rates of infection, except it has one of the lowest vaccination rates of any of the long-term care facilities. Uh, the numbers were pretty bad right from the outset here. Uh, should this have happened sooner to try to mitigate some of the damage? You know, Bill, we had been making good progress, certainly compared to any other province. We had the highest staff vaccination rates, uh, according to the COVAX data. But back in July, you're right, I asked, I wanted to see home-by-home data, because averages can be misleading. And, and you're right, there are some, some laggards. Uh, we, we saw two months of data, and just, again, even though we were having the highest vaccination rates in the country, um, they weren't enough. Uh, we had about half of operators that made the decision to put their own mandates in place, but another half that didn't. So that's why last week um, we decided that, you know, we really need to take that step. Um, obviously, that puts uh, pressure on some homes where we have lower vaccination rates, and we're going to work to support those homes. But most important thing is to protect the residents, and, and we're already seeing increased vaccinations in those homes, and that's is, the intention. Is there a grace period here, or is this effective immediately? When do you want to see full vaccination? So as, as we all know, those of us who have been vaccinated, which is now I think 86% uh, of, uh, of people across the province have at least one vaccination, 82% have, uh, have both. But as we all know, there's a gap, there's four weeks in between the first and the second dose. So we've given until November 15th um, for people to get, uh, get fully vaccinated. Um, after that, employees in long-term care homes won't be able to work in the long-term care home. And as I said, we're already seeing an, a significant uptick on some of the, some of the locations that's had lower vaccination rates. And I have to say, well, by and large, you know, we have over 90% of, uh, of, of long-term care workers that have gotten vaccines. So people, people are getting the vaccine. They know they work with vulnerable people. A lot of the 
workers in these homes see the the residents as family members and they care deeply for them. We just need those who haven't yet to, to take this step and uh, and make sure we're protecting residents. I also want to talk about the announcement uh, that you made uh, earlier this week, too, about Ontario setting aside $270 million to hire more than 4,000 long-term care workers by the end of this fiscal year. Uh, I know that uh, you have some other goals towards uh, the end of 2025 as well. Uh, talk to us about this money, and, and is the anticipation here, Minister, that this is going to accelerate that timeline that you talked about earlier this year? It, it is. The, more, the most important thing, and Bill, there's many things we're needing to do to fix long-term care. We have three three pillars in the plan, and we are building new homes. You know, in Hamilton, between 2011 and, and 2018, just for example, there were no new beds put in place. We have over 600 beds being added just in Hamilton alone. But in addition to beds, we need to make sure we have time. People want time with PSWs. They want time with nurses. So we're going to be adding 27,000 new staff nurses and PSWs. Um, we're going to be adding 4,000 of those, as, as you said, um, in the immediate future. And that's what that $270 million uh, purchases. And unusually for, for the way government operates, we've given the operators four years, clear, clearly the four-year pattern, so they know that the dollars are going to be coming so they can hire the staff. And also, I'm planning in legislation I'm going to bring later in the fall to make it part of the law, so put into the, the actual law that, that we need to have that four hours of care. It's so important that we get the care. It's what residents want. It's what family members want. And frankly, it's, it's, it's great because it's going to mean jobs, jobs for PSWs and jobs for nurses. The, the thing I think that concerns a lot of people, and this predates your time in the ministry, but it's, it's something that needs to be addressed, is that time frame. You know, you send that 2025 to reach that ultimate goal. Uh, the, the sad reality here is that an awful lot of people that are in long-term care facilities right now may not be around in, the, in 2025. And the question they're seeing is, what are you doing for us now? Well, and that's that's a that's a fair question. And what we're doing now is making sure there's 4,000 uh, new staff uh, just between now and March. The reality, Bill, is that this problem in long-term care is one that happened over decades. It happened over governments. Um, there aren't 27,000 staff available today. We are now running programs uh, that the government is funding tuitions for, for PSWs. Uh, for example, by March, it's going to give us 16,000 uh, more PSWs, not just for long-term care, but for other uh, parts of the health system. 2,000 new nurses. But we need to train uh, these people, and we need to get them into place. And so so it's not uh, a matter of the money. It's a matter of the people being trained and ready. And I was with uh, some PSWs at George Brown College just yesterday when I made the announcement. I mean, people are people are keen and excited to get into the space, um, but we need to get them through the training, and that's what we've committed to, and we've made sure it's, it's in the law that it will happen. What about hourly wages? That seems to be a concern, because when I've talked to some of the operators, and I know you did the tour, Minister, uh, retention is part of the problem. They're, they're short-staffed as it is, but a lot of people are walking away because of the long hours, uh, too much work load simply because of the short-staffing. How are you going to address that in the short term? Listen, in the short term uh, and immediate term, we've provided uh, first pandemic pay across uh, across many sectors and then um, a $3 increase for uh, PSWs. Um, the Premier is committed to the fact that we're going to you know, provide that sort of uh, support uh, for workers. And, you know, I was, I was at um, Dundurn Place in Hamilton about four weeks ago and had these exact conversations. Um, that's an example of a home um, built in the 70s uh, where our redevelopment, uh, the fact that we're building these new beds I talked about and we're redeveloping the old beds, um, PSWs and nurses uh, want a, a good place to work, a newer place to work. Uh, across the across the province uh, for the seven years before we were elected, there were only 600 beds built. Again, in Hamilton, we're building 600 beds just in Hamilton. 
um, and hundreds and hundreds in London as well. So they want a good place to work. They want a fair wage, which the Premier is committed to and which we're committed to. And we want to make sure that those extra staff uh, that we're putting in place, 4,000 uh, by March, start to take the pressure off the ones that are there. So it's it's a complicated plan, has a lot of pieces together, but I think, I think you know, together we're going to be able to fix uh, fix the challenges that we all saw in long-term care. Minister, what about uh, the, the, the infrastructure in some of these older buildings that you're talking about? And, and, you know, we had HVAC system concerns, and I know that, that you've tried to address a lot of that. Uh, we had air conditioning concerns, and there was a, a plan that was put in place, uh, which I guess, you know, kind of, it was a Band-Aid solution, I guess, to have temporary air conditioning in situations. Is, is that going to continue over the winter? I mean, it's going to get hot again next summer, and we don't want to say, gee, I wish we'd done something about it over the winter. Yeah, it is. I mean, I mean, Dundurn's a great example. I, I, the head of maintenance, I, I met him there. He had rigged together, and if anybody gets a chance to see it, a, a remarkable uh, system that had generators and air conditioners flowing up through two sides of the building. But but you're putting air conditioning into a 50-year-old building. And so that that building, for example, um, now has, has air conditioning. All of the buildings have some form of air conditioning. Um, we've spent $147 million to, to get them up to, to code, and, and we've got 60 percent that have in-room air conditioning now by the end of the year another 12 percent and really the the, the remaining I'm going to say 13 percent um, are a challenge and we're working for example with local hydro utilities and otherwise because the buildings just aren't set for it but we are we are on track to make sure that by the time it gets warm again we have air conditioning in those rooms and I have to say Bill you know we only had about 35 percent of, of these homes that had that kind of air conditioning a summer ago so we're making progress but uh, but this is the thing I get updated on every Every week, it's it's very important for the comfort of our residents. Rules are only as good as uh, as those who follow them. Uh, there has to be some sorts of uh, of uh, inspection and enforcement on this, uh, and that was sadly lacking. Uh, we found that when the pandemic started, and again, like so many other things, uh, it existed before the pandemic, but the pandemic exacerbated that. Uh, I know you did it too. You probably inspected more homes than some of the inspectors did over the last couple of years. Uh, how do you step that up to make sure that there is compliance? Uh, you know, Bill, it's, it's one of the reasons that I've been just dropping by at homes unannounced to, to get a flavor for what's happening. That was the case uh, at Dunder and, and Hamilton. And, and we are in the legislation that I'll be bringing this session going to focus really on three areas, accountability, <clears throat> transparency, which has been so important to families, and enforcement. And, uh, you know, we've added inspectors, um, but we have to look at the nature of those inspections and how many we, we need to have. So those are three areas of focus for the fall. Um, as I said, the, the plan to fix long-term care really has three parts. It has, we've got to get new beds, 30,000 net new beds, as I said, 600 for Hamilton, hundreds in London. Um, we need to make sure we add more care. That's moving from the level of care we have today to having four hours of care, which is going to be 27,000 new people to provide it. And then this issue of making sure that there's accountability, there's transparency, and we're focused on enforcement. Those three components, if we get them right, uh, are going to make a big difference for our residents. And they're going to make these long-term care homes a place where, where more people want to work, which is what we need as well. When it comes to get deciding on a game plan, you've talked about the three-pronged approach you're doing here, Minister. Uh, it's not as if you're lacking in information here. There was the report from the Canadian military. There have been a couple of independent inquiries, and, of course, your government inquiry about this. Where are those reports? Are those being used to try to, to, to develop the strategies going forward? They are, and, and much as, you, you know, you always want more information, this is a case where, as you said, we've, we've got lots of great information uh, from the Glees report uh, from the commission that we set, uh, the Auditor General as well has done has done work here, and of course, getting out and speaking to families and getting out and speaking to uh, to, to residents. So that's why we're we're not waiting. You know, the the money that we talked about for those four thousand extra frontline workers, it starts to flow 
next uh, next month in November. That's why we'll have 4,000 people in place by March. The building that we're talking about, we have over 220 development or redevelopment projects underway, uh, actually doing the building now, and we'll bring the legislation this fall. So, you know, we'll certainly keep listening. It's a complicated area, but, uh, but now's the time to get the action going. And, and, and listen, I've, I've received remarkable amount of goodwill from people. They, they see what happened in COVID. Nobody wants to see anything like that again. I think this is a time when we're really going to get a chance to fix long-term care. Brad Phillips, the Minister of Long-Term Care for the Province of Ontario. Minister, I know your time is tight. I appreciate you taking some time for us today. Thanks so much. Bill, thanks for having me on again. I'll look forward to seeing you soon. You betcha. All right. Let's uh, get some analysis on this, too. Government announcements are, are one thing, but you know, when you see what's going on on the ground, uh, you have to you know, try to mold those two together and say, okay, is there a disconnect here or is this actually working? Uh, to that end, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, who is the co-founder of Canadians for Long-Term Care Standards, and she's also a professor at Ontario Tech University. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, we just heard from the minister here with the funding announcement and uh, the vaccination program. Uh, first of all, let's talk about the funding, $270 million. They said they're going to hire 4,000 long-term care residents uh, by the end of fiscal year, which is really next spring, so we're talking some months away. Uh, is that going to have any impact at all? Hey, listen, we'll take more money whenever we can get it. But I think the, the bigger question here and what is being left out of the discourse is, what are we doing to attract the workers that left in those first two waves, right? We, we, we know that there's a revolving door in this sector, and we know the reasons why workers are leaving. So my bigger question now is, and what I think we really need to shift the focus away from, is, is this mad dash and, and, and really putting all your, your apples in this one cart, meaning the PSW Accelerated Training Program cart. And we're rushing these workers into these homes while not realizing that they're going to get in there. What do you think is going to happen? They're going to leave in six months to a year because the conditions are terrible, the pay is terrible, and we are not addressing these two main issues that explain the revolving door in this sector. So why are we throwing all of our money into these programs while not addressing the fundamental you know, underpinnings as to why workers in general leave long-term care? So my, my concern now is that, you know, it's great to have this money, but are we throwing it down the drain by putting, you know, Band-Aids on bullet holes? Well, you and I had that discussion. I'm glad you brought that up, Vivian, because I, I remember exactly the location, and it was just after they announced that the, the funding for the education program, and Mohawk College in Hamilton was one of the colleges that jumped on board, and they talked about, you know, we're going to get all these people and train them. Uh, yeah. But you mentioned at the time, she said, this is great, and it's going to cost, you know, a fair bit of money to train each individual. Uh, they're going to go into a facility, and after about three months, say, I can't do this. I'm out of here. Yeah. Well, so, you know, that, that, it's not much of a return on the investment, is it? It, no, it comes not. down and I asked the minister that just moments ago. What about retention? What are you doing to make sure yeah. that those people are comfortable and want to stay in that job? Exactly, right? And, and even yesterday in the press conference, there was a few reporters who were, who were trying to ask these exact same questions, right? Laura Stone asked, well, what about the yeah. pay? Because that is one of the big issues. So if you're not going to create permanent wage increases commensurate to that you see in acute care, then, well, I mean, what's the point, right? These temporary pandemic pay increases, which, yes, Premier Ford has extended, what, three times now, and, and, and hopefully he will extend it. But we, why these temporary extensions make it permanent? You need to, why is it fair that workers doing the exact same work in hospitals get paid, you know, 20 to 30, sometimes 40 percent more? That's not okay. I mean, you're doing the same work. What do you think is going to happen? People are leaving long-term care, and they're going to acute care. So, I mean, we need to fix this, and then home care is a whole other issue because they're paid even worse. 
than, than those, you know, workers in long-term care. It's a whole scale of exploitation, frankly. And um, we need to deal with that. And then the second is the working conditions, right? And this is the two main things that you hear from, from workers in this sector is that the pay is terrible and there's just too it's too burdensome. There are two, there's one PSW or one nurse for like 20, 30 residents. You cannot possibly succeed in those conditions. You are designed to fail. And this is why burnout is so severe in this field and why these workers understandably say, forget it, this isn't worth it. And keep in mind, the starting wage, a lot of these PSW jobs right now and in this sector is like anywhere between 18 to $21. Meanwhile, you can get a starting job right now at, at many Amazon locations, not that I would want anyone to work at Amazon, for twenty two fifty. So I'm just trying to give a benchmark here of how terribly that this work is enumerated, this work done by, by primarily women and many of which being racialized women, many of which are new to Canada, migrant and immigrant workforces. So, you know, we can't we can't get away from the fact that this is massive exploitation and we're not dealing with the fundamental you know, problems that have led to this situation. So, yeah, that needs, you know, and something that the, the, you know, was came up yesterday in the press conference, which really worried me. And I hope I can talk to the minister about this, is that, you know, he said, when another, I think it was Rob Ferguson asked, well, what are you going to do about full-time jobs? Because we know that there are so many part-time precariously employed workers who are taking jobs at multiple facilities, which we saw firsthand led to increases in infection and outbreaks. And, and it's also problematic from, you know, continuity of care and getting proper training. It, it's just a, it's a bad business model. So, you know, and he had responded saying, well, you have to give the, the owners some flexibility to decide what's right for their staffing mix. Respectfully, no, you don't. Because we see what happens when they do. They opt to include agency workers instead of having to hire the workers themselves and provide decent pay and benefit structures. Um, and that devolve, you know, takes away from their responsibility. And moreover, they hire part-time precarious work. I mean, you have the power, right? Minister Phillips has the power right now to add into the regulations. He's talking about a new regulations coming out. Add in a stipulation that all of these providers must hire a minimum 70% full-time permanent, and that's important, full-time and permanent, to 30 part-time permanent. Uh, because this is what we need. We have the data. We have international research to show, sure, some flexibility in terms of, you know, part-time is, is necessary. But nowhere near more than 30%. So you can do that. You can actually say, you know what, Holmes, we're going to have a, a provincial standard. You have to hire 70% full-time permanent, 30% part-time permanent. Why isn't he doing that? Why are we throwing money to just fund more poorly paid exploitative working arrangements, right? Well, and that's the I know we're just about out of time here, but the question here is is the quality of care. And, and I'm not trying to, to slag anybody here like PSWs, but is that the level of care that is, is na needed in these situations? Because we know that most of them are part-time, and we know that there are fewer nurses in these facilities than most people would rather see, uh, yeah. including some people in the industry. And, and th I, I know, you know, the way, I, I, and I know those are all in the reports. We talked about the military report. We talked yeah, about the independent right. review. They're all saying do the same thing. So it's not as if, uh, you know, this is a new idea. It's right there in front of them yeah it's all in there we know what to do right and, and the fact that we learned yesterday is that the, the average daily care uh, per you know average hours of daily care per day is 2.45 which is abysmal experts are calling for a minimum of 4.5 and we're being promised four in four years which is not good enough so of course when you have these kind of conditions of work and as Pat, dr pat armstrong says you know it directly impacts the conditions of care these residents will suffer under these kinds of changes. They continue to suffer. Nothing is appreciably improved. Yes, we're, we're trying to get staff, we're trying to get warm bodies 
to to staff boots on the floor into these facilities. But again, they're going to leave. You need to address the reasons behind the revolving door. Until you do, you are throwing money down the drain, period. As always, thanks so much for this. Uh, we're going to stay on this, and I know certainly that you will as well. So this is a, a, the first of many more conversations. Thanks for this today. Thank you. Take care. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, of course, co-founder of Canadians for Long-Term Care Standards. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. What if we gave an economic recovery and nobody showed up for work? That's what's happening in an awful lot of instances here. We have been discussing this for the longest time. There is a labor shortage right across this country right now. We kept hoping that, you know, once the economic recovery started and things started to open up again, that people would return to work and the economy would get back on its feet. Uh, but just about every facet of, of our economy right now is having trouble getting people to come to work for a variety of reasons, and uh, which are not inconsequential. But at the same time, the bottom line here is uh, they're short-staffed in just about every area. So what are we going to do about this? Uh, joining us to talk about this is Tricia Williams. Uh, Tricia is the Director of Research, Evaluation, and Mobilization at the Future Skills Center at Ryerson University. Uh, Tricia, pleasure to have you on the program today. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you so much, Bill. It's great to be speaking with you. It's probably a shorter list if we say what industries aren't suffered this. Just about every facet of the economy is impacted by this, aren't they? I think we're seeing it really across the economic uh, sectors, widespread. I think most people are seeing it day to day when they walk into the store or a restaurant and say, okay, there we don't have the people we need. But really, we're seeing it really across the economy. Uh, I know the uh, the report I've seen on this, they cover, well, I guess the major areas. And we've, we've talked about some of these before. Hospitality and food service is particularly hard hit. And, and I want to talk about that. Healthcare, uh, hard hit area uh, and for a, a number of different reasons. Manufacturing and construction, as we know. Uh, and uh, trucking and retail trade are, are a couple of other areas that I want to delve into uh, in our time together here today. Uh, maybe let's right off the bat talk about the most obvious one, and that, of course, is the, the hospitality industry and food services. Uh, we've talked to so many different restaurant owners and bar owners that said, look, we can't get people to help. Uh, and there's one point I want to jump right on, Tricia, if I could. The excuse or the reason an awful lot of people give is, well, you know, that CERB program, people are still there, uh, and they'd rather collect CERB and stay at home than, than go to work. And there may be some truth to that, uh, but the numbers here indicate that, look, this was a problem before COVID and before CERB came along, and like so many other things, uh, this didn't necessarily cause the problem, but it certainly exacerbated it. I couldn't agree more. You know, these we're certainly seeing the manifestation of these labor issues right now in this po- kind of coming out of the COVID era. But they are they're they've been they've been brewing for a while. Um, I think it's a it's an easy thing to point to. You know, people saying, "Oh, people don't want to work; they want to receive benefits." I don't think that tracks with what we're finding in our research. What we're finding is that you know a lot of people are still managing a lot of uh, competing demands on their time, including balancing childcare interruptions, kids home from school, you know, to quarantine. And really we're seeing in in retail and hospitality jobs, there's a lot less flexibility to have your child beside you while you're working. Like maybe if you're a worker working on your computer at home, you know, so so we're really saying that, you know, a lot of this is about supports for small businesses. And, you know, they, they don't have HR departments, right? They don't have huge budgets for kind of investing in skills and skill development the same way bigger companies might. So I think it's it's a more complicated, nuanced answer than just people are getting served benefits. But I think um, certainly we have to recognize that people are facing a lot of competing demands on their time still. 
Well, and, and, and when you speak about time, I mean, one of the problems here is, is the reality that in these particular industries that we're talking about, uh, you got to be there. Uh, there has to be a physical presence exactly. in the environment. I mean, you know, I've, I've been working from home for almost two years now. A lot of other people in the same circumstance. We're getting by. It's, it's not what we'd prefer to do, but it's it's what a lot of businesses are doing. Uh, you can't run a restaurant remotely unless you're just going to do takeout. There have to be physically people there. Uh, and first of all, you're limited by the you know by the number of people that are allowed in the facility as customers, and that's a problem, which means there's going to be a, a shortage of revenue uh, because there's not enough people working there. I, I've talked to some of the people that used to be servers that have walked away from it and say, "Look, I can't do this. It's it I'd split shifts. I don't know when I'm going to work next. They have to get called in, you know, and and it's just not worth the hassle. They get burned out. They have con- mental concerns, and they just say, I, I, I can't do this anymore.' So it, exactly. Th- There's there's definitely structural situations that are contributing to this more than just saying these people don't want to work. People want to work very much. And I know the short solution is, well, just pay them more, for heaven's sakes. And we've heard that many times, too. But, you know, if you're not making any money, uh, if you've only got 15 people in your establishment instead of 65 or 70, you're not making much money uh, because yeah. the costs are the same and, and the, the, the revenue is just not coming in. So that, that is a problem. Uh, the other area I wanted to delve into, because it's very, very important, I guess, to all of us, is health care. And, and we've already talked about how you know pleased we are and how honored we are with the, the great work of our frontline workers since this pandemic started. Uh, the downside here is burnout. Uh, and an awful lot of people have walked away from healthcare jobs, not just in long-term care facilities, as we're going to discuss in a few minutes, but, uh, but nurses in, in primary care hospitals and things of this nature. This, this has really, really been a burden for them, and, all, and the hospitals are paying a price for it. Yeah, no, I think I think it's good that the that the light is being shone on healthcare. I think we see again this is you know uh, been brewing for a while. Healthcare is a very human centered you know sector, so you can only automate and you know shift to technology so much, right? So it used to be, for instance, you'd need two home healthcare aides to help somebody get out of bed. Well, now we have a mechanized lift, so maybe one person can can do it themselves, but you still need the skills to manage that lift safely. Right. So it's, it's also the skills you need to do a job are changing. So um, I think, you know, there's, there's going to be some shorter and longer term solutions to this. So we actually have a, a partnership with the Immigrant Employment Council of British Columbia. And I'm really, you know, just excited to open up a new stream this year with them on bringing in more immigrant workers for a healthcare stream for British Columbia for personal support workers. And this is, in, you know, I think this is going to be part of a short term solution to some of these problems. Um, but recognizing that there needs to be definitely investments and skills and helping people make those transitions the kind of jobs we need. Well, it's, there's a story that actually just broke today uh, that I, I guess we had anticipated uh, that's very, very relevant to what you were just saying here, though, Tricia. Uh, there, you know, hospitals are now saying, hey, we're starting to finally catch up on all these surgeries that had to be postponed over the last year, these uh, elective surgeries, you know, non-emergency surgeries and stuff. Uh, that's the good news. Uh, they, they, it's, it's, it's coming slowly but surely, but they say that's going to put a great deal of pressure on home care now. We don't have enough people for that. Uh, there exactly. aren't enough. There aren't enough nurses doing home care right now to to do to t- satisfy the people that are there now. Let alone the influx that's expected now. Exactly, and I think we we know that we can get people in pretty quickly, um, but the the trick is we need to like they need supports and investments, right? We, that doesn't just magically happen on its own. Um, so we're we're excited because we're we're trying some new things and different approaches to skill development. And there's going to need to be a lot more uh, focus on not just, you know, training and skilling from kind of the, the, 
the career development pipeline through with young people, but also on, you know, working with immigrants and, and assessing skills pre-arrival, helping them navigate the Canadian labor market, you know, all, you know, really smoothing out those uh, challenges and making sure the system works uh, more effectively. Well, let's talk about that. I'm glad you brought the, the, that key word here, immigration. Uh, we've always relied on immigration in this country. Uh, that's what makes this country great, the fact that we, we open our doors to the, to the brightest and the best to come in here uh, and even you know to, to contribute to the economy. Uh, that has, if, it hasn't dried up necessarily, but it's, it's become a trickle now because of the pandemic. Uh, and that's having an impact on workforce, isn't it? Uh, certainly in healthcare, but in other retail sectors and in, in manufacturing, et cetera, too. Uh, there has to be a discussion, doesn't it, Trish, with the federal government especially, about easing some of the restrictions that they put in place during the, the worst days of the, of the pandemic. I mean, a lot of those uh, restrictions are still in place, and that's really hurting recruitment. Yeah, I, I think there does need to be more uh, focus on immigration, for sure. I know that the targets have been to make up the shortfall from the past couple of years. I think that that tracks. I would say it's it's not just about getting people in the door, but it's about supporting them effectively once they're in the door to make yep. sure that we can use their skills. Um, and and it's also thinking about you know supporting people right now who are you know part of this like changing economy and moving from one sector to another. So we see this that this can work, but it does require investment and support to get people you know from you know for instance working in an oil and gas sector to an IT sector. But immigration is part of the solution, but it won't be the only part. Well, it's a matter of, uh, it's a complex problem, and it's not a, a simple solution. Like I say, the short-term solution, a lot of people are saying, well, just increase benefits, increase uh, the hourly wage or whatever the case might be, but there's got to be more to it. Uh, you know, look at the realm of retail trade. I mean, there's a grocery store a couple of blocks away from me here, Trish, and it's had the Help Wanted sign up for about the last six months right now. They're looking yeah. for night shift workers. They're looking for this, and apparently nobody's applied or nobody's good because the, the job that's still up there. And uh, and that's only one example of a, of a, a Many, many examples right across the sector here where people just can't find people to come in and work right now. Yeah, yeah. No, and I mean, I could tell you stories about finding childcare. <laughs> it's a challenge, oh, sure. right? You know, um, these are these are hard things for sure. Um, I think, you know, short term, I, I think, you know, it's going to take some time to work through this for sure um, in various sectors. Um, I think we do, we are seeing like some benefits of some rapid kind of upskilling courses or rapid retraining courses that are going to help kind of fill some of the gaps in different sectors of the economy. Um, but I think longer term, you know, we need to think about, you know, you know, our skills training career guidance systems, right? How do we make sure that work is attractive to people? And wages is part of the question, but we're also seeing people saying, you know, we need flexibility. You mentioned scheduling. You know, these are the kinds of things that people are looking for in a quality work experience. Well, exactly, and that goes across all sectors, certainly. Uh, the, the other one I wanted to touch on here, because it has, I think, massive implications here, is the trucking industry. Uh, you know, we pride ourselves here in southern Ontario as having one of the best networks here, you know, multimodal yeah. transportation, uh, you know, trucks, uh, ships, planes, everything. You know, we need to get products to market. And uh, if there aren't enough trucks and not enough drivers to drive those trucks, uh, we're running into the risk, and I've already talked to some people in the grocery stores we were just talking about here, uh, that they're concerned about supply chain interruptions, which means it's, the products may not get there in time. I don't know we're going to get to the point of necessarily bare shelves, but there's, there's a real problem here trying to get products to market right now uh, if you can't get the transportation to get them there. Well, this is certainly top of mind for everyone. We see the we see the news and the pictures from the UK, and we say we don't want that, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I think I think trucking is a very interesting one because I think we we've been aware. I think COVID has certainly shown us of you know the vulnerability of supply chains. I would think globally and locally, right? So we're we're feeling that that uh, vulnerability. I think in new ways. And certainly, I feel for all the all the businesses that are worried about: Are we going to get our products on our shelves? Um, I think once again, trucking is a good example of where we see, you know, potentially a lot of disruption on the horizon, right? So we've been hearing about automated vehicles for a long time. You know, there's there's a very real possibility that in the next 20, 30 years, that that's more of a reality. But we don't yet know what that will look like. Right. So what what we're actually excited about is some of the some of the sector associations are really on, on the cutting edge of thinking about what this means for the future. And how do we bring people in and, and train them effectively to get the skills they need? So, for example, there's a there's a, a trucking human resource sector council in the Atlantic Canada, which is charged with thinking about, you know, human resource needs for the trucking sector in the Atlantic region. And we're actually testing some training that uses virtual reality right now that helps, you know, truckers get trained in a virtual reality setting, but also then on the road more quickly because they get the skills they need. Like these are the kinds of things that we could do to really prepare and and to make the future of work really present in, in the present. And, and it's great to know that the industry and the, and the private sector are yeah. involved in that. They, they see what's going on. I mean, they see it every day. Uh, but do governments get it? I mean, there's going to have to be a partnership here between that private sector and the government to say, look, at these are the programs that we need to encourage and maybe even fund to a certain extent uh, to try to, to alleviate some of these shortages right now. Are, are they on side? Are they, are they at the table? I think they are on side. I think they are at the table. We hear widespread... Um, enthusiasm and interest from across the federal and provincial governments. Um, there's a lot of interest in saying what's working, what 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 isn't working, where do we where are we going to get the most bang for our buck with investing dollars? And we're excited that we have some early investments that are starting to show show results, like I've mentioned on this call. Um, you know, I I don't think unfortunately we don't have easy solutions, but they are there are solutions that will involve lots of people at the table. Well, and you mentioned the UK as an example. I one of the advantages, I guess, we've had, if you could use that phrase, uh, with our position here with COVID and the pandemic, uh, is we can we can watch and learn from other jurisdictions that have gone through yeah. this, the UK, other places, Israel, and things of this nature, and learn not just about vaccines and, and yeah. the efficacy of vaccines, et cetera, but the impact it's having on the economony. Uh, and anybody who naively thought, well, as you know, when the pandemic and the lockdowns are over, we'll just open the doors and everything's going to be fine again. I, th- I think they've come to the realization that there's a lot of work yet to be done here. I couldn't agree more. I mean, there's uh, some... Obviously, we're, we're benefiting from looking across, you know, various countries and seeing what different policy measures have put in place, different examples of, of programs. Um, but really, I don't think anyone has this totally figured out. And Canada's making making some interesting, you know, choices. And, and, and I would say, you know, really, you know, we're right there neck and neck with everyone and trying to figure out the solutions to this. And we have lessons to offer the rest of the world as well. And they can look to us and say, okay, mm-hmm. what are we doing around skills development here and things we're trying? Well, the analytics are an important part of that discussion, and uh, the great work that you're doing at Ryerson is, is going to be a key role in that as well. Tricia, thank you so much for the time today. Great to have you on the program. Thank you so much, Bill. Take care. Tricia Williams, who is the Director of Research and Evaluation and Mobilization at the Future Skills Center at Ryerson University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau issued a public apology 
again, uh, this time about vacationing in Tofino on the first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. Here's what the PM had to say. Traveling on September 30th was a mistake, and I regret it. The first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation was a time for Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people alike to reflect and connect, think about the past, but also focus on the future. I want to thank uh, Chief Casimir of De Kamloops uh, for the conversation we had over the weekend in which I apologized for not being there uh, with her and her community uh, for this important day. And I committed to uh, going to visit the Tikamlups Teswekmuk uh, community uh, in the coming weeks. There's a lot of work for us all to do, and I'm committed to doing it. Leadership, matter of judgment, open letter to Prime Minister Trudeau, in re uh, I guess in response to really this. The author of this letter is Dr. Charles Pascal. Uh, Dr. Pascal is a former deputy education minister and current professor of applied psychology and human development at the University of Toronto. Uh, doctor, always uh, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Uh, good to hear your voice, Bill. Uh, the, the letter that you've written uh, to the Prime Minister is, uh, is very timely, certain of all, and certainly very poignant, uh, and uh, I, I think speaks to an awful lot of the, the concerns that a lot of people are feeling right now. Uh, apologies are one thing, as you mentioned in the letter, but, uh, but how about not making the mistakes in the first place? And There's a track record here that I find very disturbing, and I know you talk about that in the letter. Yeah, well, in your intro, Bill, you, uh, you nailed it with one word. You said yesterday the Prime Minister offered an apology dot, 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 again. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in my open letter, which was uh, posted uh, on uh, social media, I called attention to probably about six or seven unforced errors. Uh, you know, this is a prime minister who sets high expectations uh, because I believe he's sincere about these things. Uh, but if you bookend uh, his apologies regarding uh, the vacation he took during Christmas, uh, supported by the Aga Khan, uh, and you look at last week's uh, error, who in his world is telling him, Prime Minister, you cannot do this, but you must do this. And I don't think he's got anybody in his world who basically uh, coaches him about how to avoid unforced errors. And we've seen the result of this. But the frustration here, Charles, is you've been in and around politics for many, many years. Uh, and, and there needs to be that buffer, that, that person. Uh, you know, I, I'm reminded, as I read your letter this morning, of uh, the old thing about, you know, when a, a, a victorious Roman general would come back to Rome to celebrate and to be a huge, huge parade uh, down the main streets and thousands and thousands of cheering people. But, and, but in the chariot where the general was, as you know, there was always somebody there that was his job was basically to whisper in the guy's ear, remember, you're only human. Uh, you need somebody to ground you every now and then, and I don't know that there's anybody in the PMO that does that. No, I, I the, obviously there's, uh, there's nobody in his world uh, that will stand up to him and say, you cannot do this. And the problem with this particular uh, prime minister is he creates such high expectations, I think, in a very sincere way. I think he has very clear core values about equity, indigenous issues, uh, but he creates these over-the-top, uh, I'm going to get all this done, and then he does something like this. So the gap between his rhetoric and his expressed core values about equity, indigenous issues, and, and what he does uh, is too big a gulf. And uh, 
I think I just think uh, he's he's losing. Uh, he's probably losing the crowd within his own uh, political world uh, by what he did last week. Uh, in my book, uh, I, I, I quoted in the letter uh, a chapter from my my book on leadership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the chapter is called "The Opportunity of Mistakes." Uh, and number one, you got to avoid them. But when you do, you got to learn from them. I don't think there's a lot of learning going on regarding. Uh, how to avoid uh, these uh, uh, these mistakes? Well, and and you outlined some of them, and I, they're all familiar to us. I mean, you know, the, you mentioned the uh, the trip, uh, you know, fashioned by the Aga Khan, um, uh, the SNC Lavalin situation, uh, the Wee scandal, and at some point, and the question I kept asking myself as as these started to unfold one after another was, didn't he learn from the last time? Uh, you know, SNC Lavalin, a lot of people thought was going to sink his government, uh, and and God knows the opposition parties tried to make that happen. It didn't. He ended up with a minority government, but uh, you'd think, okay. Okay, maybe I learned from that. Boy, I don't want to go down that road again. And it was just weeks after that. Then all of a sudden, the we thing starts happening. Uh, and 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 as for what happened, you know, with the Tofino trip, this is the the one that I found most egregious. It's his government that decided that there was going to be a national truth and reconciliation. This was his initiative, yeah, and he yeah. talked passionately about this. And I thought, as you mentioned in the letter, sincerely uh, about you know righting the wrongs of the past, and we need to do something about that. Where in God's name did he get the idea that it was okay for him to just take a family vacation that, that one day when people are going to be focused on that an initiative that he started yeah well the person usually the person who has the role of the um, the person who basically provides uh, the kind of overriding advice is the principal secretary uh, and since uh, Gerald Butts left as uh, principal secretary I asked some of my liberal insiders I'm a nonpartisan former Washed mm-hmm. up bureaucrat. Um, <laughs> I ask. I ask uh, people, who's his principal secretary right now? And people can't come up with an answer because he doesn't have one. And so, uh, you know, w- one of the examples I used, uh, Bill, as you know, in the letter, was uh, Julie Payette's appointment. Yeah. When the rest of the world, uh, every Canadian who is paying attention to the Bill Kelly show uh, and reads newspapers, uh, knew that the due diligence wasn't there. That she had a track record of abuse in former activities, including a relationship with her husband. Uh, and the prime minister stands up and says, while everybody else knows the contrary, that he did due diligence. Well, he didn't. And so, I, you know, I just don't, I don't get it. And I think he's lost, uh, I think he's lost a lot of credibility with people who wanted to believe uh, in all the things that he says he wants to do. Well, and there's the credibility, I think, Charles, is one of the key elements here. And, and I know there's a lot of criticism and a lot of it justified against him right now. And, but as you mentioned in the letter, some of it, some of it is frankly partisan. Uh, they just don't like Justin Trudeau. They don't like liberals. Sure. And, you know, so they're going to pick on him because of the socks he wears or anything else. And I get that. And I'm dismissive of that sort of stuff. I, I haven't got time for that. But it's the legitimate criticism that's coming from people, uh, that are nonpartisan or in as some cases, as you mentioned, even within his own party that are saying, Look, you know this is this is embarrassing uh, for him to carry on. He's he's not a stupid man. He's he's a, a very intelligent man, as you say, very passionate. Uh, but I, I the it, you use the term obviously unforced errors. You you and I are big baseball fans, and there's nothing worse than to see an easy fly ball get dropped in the outfield. And you figure, well, come on, you know better than that. You know what you're doing. You took your eye off the ball, and that's what he seems to do here. Yeah, well, I'm you know I'm a baseball guy, and I'm always concerned about mental errors. Yeah, uh, missing missing the cutoff uh, from the outfield, things like that. But but to to your point, um, I, I point out in the letter that you know he's very clear about what he stands for, 
And, you know, by and large, I would rather have leaders be clear about what their core values are uh, uh, than, you know, those who just kind of make it up as they go along. I'm a nonpartisan. I know people around the prime minister. Uh, I have great relationships in every direction regarding political parties. But as a nonpartisan, as you say, uh, I, I just I'm, I'm just trying to offer the best advice I can, which I tried, which I tried to do uh, uh, in 2019 with my op-ed where I said he needed someone like Ralph Goodale to be his principal secretary. Somebody, somebody like that, and we've all had them. And I, I, I'm at a loss, as you are, Charles, to try to figure out who that might be. But yeah. other prime ministers have had that. I mean, and other prime ministers have still, you know, they've been their own person. It's not as if they say, "What should I do?" But you, you take that advice. Oh, no, uh, that's, and, yeah, that's absolutely correct. Yeah, it's not somebody who's going to say, uh, you know, do this, do this, whatever, like a puppet. Uh, it's it's somebody who basically says, Prime Minister, I know, I know, you and the family want to go visit the Aga Khan. I use the plane, have a free trip, but you cannot do that uh, and uh, get him to have a sober second thought. That's that's what the role is. And you know, you've been around politicians a lot, and, and I served a little bit of time in municipal politics. I mean, I've, I've been around politics just for a long time as well. It's a different set of rules, and he should know that. He grew up in a political family. Uh, that, you know, maybe maybe Justin Trudeau, private citizen, wants to go visit the Aga Khan. Knock yourself out. Go have a blast. Who cares? You know, uh, have a great time. But once you become a public figure like this, there's a different set of rules, and you have to say, wait a second, how is this going to look? How is this going to be perceived? Is this really the right thing to do? And I don't know that there's anybody asking those questions. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I totally agree. That's the purpose of the letter. And uh, it was a tough one for me to write, Bill, uh, uh, because, you know, I didn't want to pounce on. I'm trying to offer advice. Uh, but um, I've had quite a good response from it, uh, including people who are partisans who just like anything that, you know, where somebody's uh, pounced on. That wasn't the purpose of the letter. So, I mean, where does he go? I mean, like I say, this this is a growing list. It's kind of frustrating right now. A guy that, that really should know better. And I know you had relationships. You knew his his dad's administration. Uh, you've had relationships with uh, with provincial premiers here in this province as well. Uh, was there that buffer? Uh, you know, because, I mean, I, we see that happen in the States. I mean, the, the comparison, the easy comparison here is Donald Trump, who had no filter at all, just did what he wanted and said what he wanted, and, and much to the chagrin and, and, you know, to the detriment, I guess, of the American people. Uh, and But we can be better than that. And, and I'm not comparing Trudeau at all to Trump, but I'm just saying yeah. there's a higher standard, and he knows what that higher standard is. Yeah. Well, uh, let, let me, first of all, Trump is a, is a very sick man, so let's set that aside. But if, if you take one of my favorite politicians of all time, my favorite Ontario Premier, uh, William Grenville Davis, uh, yep. about whom I uh, wrote recently about my 40-year relationship with him. Mr. Davis had people around him uh, that actually provided the right kind of buffer regarding uh, doing this or doing that. He, he was uh, thinking about going uh, federally, uh, you know, after he left uh, uh, Queen's Park, and uh, he had uh, three people over for dinner. Uh, and they basically, uh, uh, two out of the three said, do it. And one said, do not do this. And here's why people like Mr. Davis, uh, had good people around him. Uh, he was his own person, uh, but he knew how to, uh, surround himself with great people and listen to them.
Yeah, I heard some stories. I, I got to know uh, Dr. Bob Elgy quite well when uh, he was. Uh, my, my wife served on the Greenbelt Council. He was one of the initial members on the Greenbelt Council, and Dr. Elgy, of course, was the chair for many years. And uh, we'd talk after some of those meetings, and he told me some Bill Davis stories, and and that was the one common thread. Bill Davis listened to people. Uh, you know, he like you say, he was his own man. He was a leader, but he 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 talked to other people. And he, for instance, he and Dr. Elgy had a vi- very divergent opinions on a lot of different things. I, you know, Dr. Elgy was a little more to the left than Bill Davis was, and but he listened to him, got his advice, and say, okay, you know, that's that's information I need. Uh, you need somebody like that, you know. I'm, and even you know, Barack Obama down in the states after he got elected in 2008, he still leaned on guys like David Pluff and others who got him there and 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 knew him and said, you know, should I do this? Shouldn't I do this? You've got to have that sounding board sometimes, no matter who you are. Yeah, no, Obama's another great example. His book really describes uh, who was around him, and uh, uh, so that's another great example. You have to have people, uh, even if you're as smart and bright and brilliant as a Barack Obama, uh, you you got to listen, you got to surround yourself with good people uh, and take the best advice possible, argue uh, in a principled way as opposed to... uh, conflict. There's nothing wrong with conflict among and between advisors. It's how that conflict is resolved in a way that reaches a very clear answer to a question. What's the right thing to do in this instant? That is the question that all leaders should be asked to answer before doing certain kinds of things. There's an old phrase in U.S. politics that I guess we could apply here too, though, isn't it, Charles? I mean, you know, the, the, the old thing about after a cabinet meeting, I think it was FDR's cabinet, how's this going to play in Peoria, uh, Illinois? You know, small-town America. In other words, how are people going to perceive this? And I'd like to think that around the cabinet table in Ottawa, that same question is asked before they open the doors and say, go ahead. That doesn't mean, put, that doesn't mean okay, what kind of spin are we going to put on it? Just, okay, how is this going to be perceived? We seem to think it's okay, at least some of us do. But, you know, how are Canadians going to think about this? And I don't know that they asked that question. Yeah, yeah our Peoria, I, I used to play uh, as a boy born in Chicago. I, I played baseball in Peoria. Our version oh. is Peterborough and Sherbrooke are the two. <laughs> there you go. used to be the two test case uh, cities. You, you want to know how Canadians are going to respond, but you also want to be bold once in a while to fight against public opinion a bit, uh, to raise the level of literacy and do certain kinds of things and, People like, uh, you know, Barack Obama and Mr. Davis and a whole bunch of other leaders who understand this stuff, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, are performers, uh, uh way above, uh, what others have done. So, uh, the letter is, uh, available. It's online. You can, uh, charlespascal.com, uh, slash blog. Uh, you can see the letter there for yourself and read it. Very, very poignant letter. Charles, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Stay well and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Yeah. Best, best to you as well, Bill. Take care. Take care. Dr. Charles Pascal, the uh, author of the open letter to uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.